more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Matt Vaughn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or if you just want to find out more about all the awesome things we have going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Ellen Dimmitt. Ellen is a fourth-year graduate student in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences, and she is advised by Dr. Tal Levy. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're excited to have you, and we have so much to talk about with you, um, so let's dive right in. Ellen, your research primarily uses non-invasive genetic methods to study large carnivores in Alaska and Central America. Before we get into who those carnivores are, what those ecosystems are all about, can you tell us what makes the genetic methods that you use non-invasive? Yeah, so typically when a researcher studies large carnivores, uh, spoiler alert, I study large carnivores in these (laughs) ecosystems, uh, they uh, will capture the animals and use the animal while it's sedated. They'll take genetic samples from it, or they'll potentially put a collar on it so that they can track its movement. For my studies, I'm actually collecting scat samples primarily, uh, which you can find all across the landscape as long as the animals are in the general area and then using the DNA that's left behind in these scats to do my analyses. And so is the motivation to using scats versus trying to find collar or, you know, take samples from live animals, what's sort of the reasoning for that in your two projects? Yeah, so up in Alaska, I'm working in a coastal ecosystem. So the main concern would be that if we were to try and sedate an animal to be able to handle it, uh, it would be a big helicopter-based operation And if you dart an animal, it takes a little bit of time for the tranquilizer to kick in. There's a risk that the animal would run into water Mm. and fall asleep there and potentially drown. So Mm. that's one consideration. Mm -hmm. The other consideration is that it's hard to land the helicopter. It takes some time to find a spot where you can put it down on the beach and then walk over to where the animal is. And in all of that time, the tranquilizer will be wearing off gradually. So Mm. by the time you get to the animal, you might not have sufficient time to handle it. And also, it's just more cost effective and allows us to sort of preserve the relationship that visitors to these ecosystems are able to have with these animals as a result of them never having been harassed by humans. Mm. Interesting. 
So you've uh, got that project in Alaska and you've also got a project in Central America. So we'll be mainly focusing on the Alaskan project, but can you just give us a rundown of your research in Central America and what you're looking at? Yeah, so I'm working with the Wildlife Conservation Society in Guatemala to study large carnivores in the Maya Biosphere Reserve, which is the largest continual uh, area of tropical rainforest in Central America. It encompasses a large part of northern Guatemala as well as Belize and Mexico. And the project started with a focus on jaguars. They wanted me to do some diet analysis using jaguar scat that they had collected in the park. But while we were collecting additional samples in 2022, we ended up finding a lot of samples from other species, such as puma, ocelot, marge, coyote, gray fox, a lot of carnivores in the system, mm. and decided to analyze all of them and shift our study to be more of a whole food web perspective of what are all of these carnivores eating because it's a very understudied system. And yeah, sorry, listeners, we're just there's so much to pack into tonight's interview. So we are going to be focusing more on the Alaskan project. Um, but give us sort of a, a teaser of like one of the cool things that you've found um, so far from the Guatemalan project um, from all these different scat samples from a huge host of, of predators. Yeah, so one of the research questions I'm focused on for that project is how are jaguars and pumas, two large cat species, able to coexist in the same system without competitively excluding one another? Mm -hmm. And one of the answers that we've kind of found out with our initial analysis of the scat samples is that the pumas are eating a lot of monkeys, spider monkeys and howler monkeys, which they are ostensibly catching up in the trees or <laughs> ambushing at water hole, watering holes. That seems Whereas, wild. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's crazy to imagine seeing that hunt take place mm -hmm. in person. Um, and that's probably what facilitates their coexistence with jaguars, because mm. jaguars are not as good at climbing, not as small bodied, probably can't kill a monkey as, e as easily, mm. but are better at killing, you know, the other large ground-dwelling animals like peccaries, armadillos, things like that. Yeah, I have you been lucky enough to see that attack in action? No, but there is video of it on YouTube. Oh, Actually, okay. ever since I started talking with people about this sort of hypothesis, I've been approached with a lot of different anecdotes about mm. pumas being up in trees and killing things up in trees. So it's definitely <laughs> something that we know happens and kind of makes the result less surprising, but also more exciting that it's backed up by these sort of natural history observations. Yeah, that's so cool. We'll have to look that up on YouTube after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, pivoting to sort of the 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 meat of the show, which is um, going to be about your wolf project in, in Alaska. So tell us a little bit about the impetus for the project and, and why it came about. Yeah, so... I started this work in Katmai National Park and Preserve, which is located directly across from Kodiak Island in southwest Alaska, kind of at the top of the Alaska Peninsula. And going way back to 2016, the park's coastal biologist, Kelsey Griffin, started seeing wolves carrying sea otter carcasses on the beach there, uh, which was an interesting thing to see. Some context is that sea otters were extirpated from much of the Gulf of Alaska by the maritime fur trade, and then we actually reintroduced them to try and restore their population by translocating some individuals from the Aleutian Islands into southeast Alaska. And ever since then, they've been recolonizing their historic range. Mm. And that includes Katmai National Park. So they recently have reached carrying capacity in Katmai. So they're kind of a new addition to the system, even though they had been there historically. So seeing wolves eating them was immediately interesting because it's, you know, an example of not only are they both top predators, but it's wolves taking advantage of something that humans have brought back into the system. 
So these sightings continued. It wasn't just the park biologist seeing wolves with otter and the park was interested in it. So we were able to get, you know, some funding, some grant funding to start this project to analyze the diet of the coastal wolves living there. Wow. And uh, what do wolves normally eat? Well, people typically think of wolves as being obligatory deer predators, especially Mm -hmm. when we think about wolves in the American West following you know, migratory herds of elk or following the deer or even in some instances killing bison. You hear about wolves in Yellowstone doing that sometimes. Um, But typically there's this assumption that wolves need deer to survive Mm -hmm. or at least large bodied prey, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that be deer or maybe even livestock. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in Alaska, as our research is kind of starting to reveal, that's certainly not the case all of the time. Mm. They seem to be a lot more uh, generalist um, and kind of opportunistic, taking advantage of things that are there, like the sea otters that are kind of reaching this carrying capacity. Exactly. They are very clever and flexible and able to take advantage of whatever is available to them in the system. And in the case of Katmai National Park, that happens to be sea otters, as well as harbor seals, stellar sea lion, a lot of other marine mammals and fish we're seeing Mm. a lot in their diet as well. So Mm. a really heavily marine diet and you know, that's what's available to them there. And also on top of that, there aren't many deer in Katmai. In fact, the Mm. only ungulate, which is just a hoofed mammal is an ungulate. The only ungulate in the park is moose. And we think that the moose population on the coast is pretty low density. So it makes sense that the wolves would have to turn to other large bodied prey options like otter to meet their energetic needs. Mm. And so besides sort of not really, uh, you know, the the sort of the curiosity of seeing wolves carrying sea otters and that sort of being a thread to follow for this project, also generally not much was known about sort of the Katmai wolf population um, in this area uh, yeah, before you started. Yeah, that's true. We're the first formal investigation into what these wolves are doing, which is interesting because there's an incredibly high abundance of wolves living out on the coast there, as we know now. But You know, wolf sightings have always sort of been frequent on the Katmai coast, but I think in large part because researchers have been really focused on bears there, the Mm. wolves haven't Mm -hmm. gotten a lot of attention until our project. Right. And you said uh, there's, you know, a ton of wolves in Alaska. So you're looking at uh, different populations in different locations. Can you expand a bit more on that? Yeah. So the Katmai coastline is very big. It's actually almost 500 miles long. Mm. Um, And that's not as the crow flies, Mm. but that's counting all the twists and turns of the bays and Mm. features along the coast. And we were able to sample six different locations along the coast, kind of representing the full span of it. So we had a couple of field sites at the southernmost part of the coast, a couple towards the northernmost part, and a couple in the middle. Mm -hmm. And we kind of went into it with the assumption that there'd be a couple of wolf packs on the coast, at least, just because they were being seen Mm -hmm. so frequently. Um, But what we know now is that there is actually a unique wolf pack at each of these sites that we visited. So the wolf density really is higher than even we had expected there. And I think this is in large part because of their access to these marine prey items. Wow. And do you think these like six sites that you've picked and therefore these like six to seven packs that you found, is there potentially more just because you haven't maybe covered like the full stretch? Yeah, absolutely. There are stretches of coastline that we weren't able to make it to just for logistical reasons. Mm. You know, we didn't have enough time or we couldn't find a place for the plane to land. Mm. And there are wolves seen there. And you know, we, we can't know for sure whether mm-hmm. those are wolves from the sites that we've already visited that are traveling down into those areas to forage or whatever, or whether those are um, truly unique packs. It's certainly possible that they could be. 
Speaking of logistics, uh, <laughs> you've already touched on, you know, the remoteness of Katmai and, you know, you've mentioned a plane and a helicopter. Um, talk our listeners through what it means to to do this research, because it's not straightforward. It's not, you know, it's not driving up there in a car and having all sorts of amenities available to you. Right. So Katmai is completely off of the road system in Alaska, as are many of these smaller towns in the most beautiful places of the state. Uh, so for the duration of my field season there, which was four months long, I was living in a town called King Salmon, which is actually all the way on the other side of the Alaska Peninsula in Bristol Bay. And whenever we needed to access our field sites, we would have to take a small fixed wing plane or a float plane to get out to the coast. We had a couple of different planes we'd fly in. One of them was just a two seater plane. It only fit two people, the pilot, one passenger and all of our gear. Wow. And so we'd have to take multiple trips to shuttle the entire field crew out to the coast. Um, and then that plane had wheels and would land on the beach at low tide. And then the other option would be to take a float plane. And that one was a little bit bigger. It sat four people instead of two. <laughs> wow. and Luxury. Yes. And that one we could land on the ocean if it was calm enough or on mm -hmm. a lake or sometimes on the mouth of a river um, and unload our gear there. And then, uh, I mean, the whole plane logistics to begin with is tricky because the you have to fly over the Aleutian Range, the Aleutian Mountains, which are these massive volcanic volcanic mountain range. And it the weather there is not ever <laughs> cooperative. So sometimes you end up getting delayed like a week before you make it out to the field. But you land and then unpack all your gear. And then the first thing we do is set up an electric fence for the bears. Katmai has some of the highest brown bear density of anywhere in the world. So that's always on our minds while we're working mm. out there. And then we'll set up our tents and we'll work out of that base camp, which we usually choose a spot near freshwater just for the convenience of that, um, for like two to three weeks while we're working. Wow. So how many like how many trips have you made to Alaska and how often have you done it? And once you do set up camp, how's your how's the trip look? You know, the two, three weeks that you're out there, what are you doing? Yeah, so I have done two field seasons in Alaska now. Each one was four months long. The first was in Katmai National Park, and the second one was in Lake Clark National Park, which is just like 150 miles north of Katmai, further up um, the Alaska Peninsula. And when we're you know, in a season, if not, nothing ever goes perfectly according to plan. <laughs> so we always we always think we're going to get out to the coast a lot more than we actually end up mm. doing. Um, and in fact, when during my season at Lake Clark, we ended up having to switch a lot of our trips to being boat based because one of the planes crashed in the middle of the season. Everyone was OK, but we like lost the plane. So, oh boy, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things like that happen, too. Um, and. Yeah, so usually over the course of a season, we'll make it out there maybe like 10 times. Um, and then while we're out there, uh, we are mainly looking for wolf poop. So really, that just looks like hiking. Uh, it's kind of the best field work ever for mm -hmm. that reason. There's no super strict plan to follow. It's not like we're walking transects. It's not like we're going to specific sites. We kind of get on the ground get a feel for the landscape, get a feel for what the animals are doing there by paying attention to the sign, the tracks we're seeing. You know, sometimes we hear the wolves and then we get really lucky because we can kind of walk towards their howling. And um, otherwise, it's, yeah, just walking up and down the beach, walking along the game trails and trying to intuit where the wolves are spending their time. Uh, because really the gold mine of this field work is when we can find a den or a rendezvous site mm. um, because that is where all of the genetic samples, all of the scat, all of the hair are going to be. 
Mm. Oh, so um, they'll... Sorry, this is new information for me. So wolves will tend to do most of their business sort of where they're staying for a lot of the time. Yeah, so it's a timing thing. We're there. So wolves in Alaska have their puppies in like the late spring. Mm -hmm. And then the puppies are kind of, you know, by the time we're out there in the field doing our field work in the summer, you know, in July, August, September, the pups are old enough to no longer be in the den all the time. And typically when they get to a certain age where they're, more independent and rambunctious but still puppies they still need to be supervised the pack will move off of the den site to a location called a rendezvous site which is typically close to the den but it's usually more of an open area where the adult wolves in the pack can observe the puppies while they play but still gives the pups a little bit more independence Mm. um and so they're usually by the time we're at these field sites on the rendezvous site uh, which is good because we wouldn't want to go on the den while they have puppies in the den. We don't want to disturb them in that way. So them having moved off of the den allows us to go collect all of the scat from that they, you know, pooped out while mm-hmm. they were living on the den mm-hmm. and allows us to also tell which individuals are pups because their scats are tiny. Oh, <laughs> so that's really convenient. And then we can also find the rendezvous site typically by hearing howling or actually seeing the signs of the wolves there or the wolves themselves Mm. and then do they go for like foraging trips like on a daily basis from this site yeah so it depends on the pack they all have one of the coolest things that we found about them is just how different and unique each pack is in terms of its foraging behavior Mm. so there's one pack uh we call them the swick shack pack it's just the name of the lagoon where they live they are really focused on killing sea otters at this specific haul-out area. A haul-out is just an area where marine mammals come out of the water to rest. Um, in this case, it's a little scurry of rocks offshore that become accessible to the wolves at low tide because the sand spit emerges mm-hmm. that they can walk out on. And every single day, we would go down to the beach at like 7 a.m. and see the wolf tracks that they had already gone to check the haul out for the otters. So that is their kind of daily foraging wow. pattern. We never ended up finding their den, this pack, but we do know that every single day, they w- at least one of them would go down to check this haul out to see whether there was any otter there <sighs> to eat. Versus another pack that we saw, the Dakovac pack, they're really focused on killing Arctic ground squirrel. Mm. So their strategy is more based around you know what ground squirrels can they find near the den site so Mm -hmm. they're not doing these sort of like ritualistic trips to a specific location to look for prey but rather doing more of a you know central area foraging type of Mm. activity and you're defining these different uh packs or different populations based on um just purely location like they don't have much crossover at all or yeah so we were able to initially we delineated the packs just based on the names of the locations where we encountered them and then now that i have had the time to analyze the samples i collected one of the analyses we do is called genotyping by single nucleotide polymorphisms and we don't need to get into the specifics of that but basically it allows us to read the unique dna sequences of individuals to distinguish individual wolves from one another Mm. and then that individual identity becomes associated with a gps location where we found the scat so what we The end product kind of of that analysis is a map of where all of these individual wolves were detected. And once we have the data visualized that way, we can make assumptions about what wolves are associated with one another Mm. spatially and thus probably in a pack Mm. with each other. And in terms of crossover, there is one instance where at least one instance where we recaptured 
uh, individual wolves crossing into the territories of one another. Mm. And these were two packs that were located in adjacent bays on the coast that were separated from a little ridge line. So there was some landscape features keeping them apart from one another. But as the crow flies, they were probably only seven kilometers apart, so really close to each other. And we know that both packs bred that year because we found the dens at both sites and they had puppies. So independently breeding females, but we're still recapturing the adult wolves from those packs on one another's territory. So that's really interesting. It could mean that there's some sort of breakdown in the traditional territoriality that we think of with wolves as a result of there being super abundant food, perhaps. Or maybe this was one family group where two females bred the same male, which we also have recorded happening in places like Yellowstone where the packs get really big or when the food's really Mm -hmm. abundant. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I feel like it's very different to like what you anecdotally usually hear about wolves. They're like defying all of the, I don't know, the long held beliefs about wolf ecology. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Now I have to ask because I'm sure our listeners are are wondering, um, you're dealing with wolves like that's crazy and it's such a fun adventure. Um, Is it dangerous at all? Do they do they pay you attention? What do you have any interesting interactions with them? Yeah, so I don't feel, I mean, of course, you're always careful around any sort of wild animal, especially when you're in a really remote place. Like if anything happens to us out there, our closest help is the Coast Guard. So it's, you know, we have to be very careful always. That being said, I don't think the wolves are a particularly large threat. I think if anything, their curiosity might be what makes them troublesome. There was one instance in Katmai where a wolf, I think, stole like a tourist's camera bag, um, which wolves really like toys and Mm. we see this a lot they'll pick up like marine debris on the beach and bring it back to the den and chew on it and play with it with their puppies so that's probably why they took the camera bag they thought it was like cool color or something Mm. and thought it looked interesting Mm. and went and grabbed it so (laughs) yeah that sort of thing um i think it might be a little bit different if you encounter these wolves in a situation where they were really uh strained for food Mm. um because that's kind of when you hear about predatory attacks from wolves in the news or whatever that's typically the circumstances that Mm. those attacks Mm -hmm. happen under uh as far as animals in general go in alaska the bear situation i already Mm. mentioned is pretty intense in katmai and that is something that we are uh definitely thinking about all the time while we're out there the bears do pose a potential threat to people just by nature of them being a very large and powerful animal with sometimes unpredictable behavior. Uh, We've never had big trouble with bears. We have had to haze a few. I had to light a flare at one one time. Uh, But yeah, more so than the wolves, the bears are what we're thinking about. Mm. And um, you're so far away. It's just you and a field tech. How, How do people, you know, down here in Oregon know that you're okay? So I, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people in my life just cross their fingers and uh, wait for me to text when I get back out of the field. But I've gotten uh, a postcard from Ellen before. Yes. <laughs> Hello, I'm still alive yeah. here. Um, but I do have an in-reach device that has limited messaging mm. capacity. I'm able to send messages to like my advisor, whoever from that. Um, But most importantly, all field-based operations in Alaska have to check in twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, with the Alaska Regional Communications Center, ARCC. And you call them just to let them know that you're okay. You tell them when your next check-in time will be, and then they expect a call from you then. And if you miss your subsequent check-in, then they assume that something bad has happened Mm -hmm. to you, so they actually start 
preparing a flight to go out to, you know, your last known location to look for you. And before your trip, you have to tell them, you know, the color of your raincoat. So if they are in a situation where they're looking for you, they know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And you have to report your entire field plan for them um, every morning. So I call them, you know, at 7 a.m. I say, hey, this is Katmai 317. We're going to be walking five kilometers to the east today. And then they'll ask, when's your next check-in? And then we'll tell them 8 p.m. And then they'll say, okay, we'll hear from you then. So there's definitely a protocol in place to make sure that we're alive. (laughs) What an adventure. I know. (laughs) It sounds like something I I want to like read about and listen to. I don't know if I if I had the gumption to do it. You're very impressive, Ellen. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you love it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a dream in so many ways. Wow. Um, Let's talk a little bit. You've you've touched on Lake Clark um, National Park, your sort of other um, site, like big site um, that sort of you're using in a comparative way with Katmai. Um, Tell us a little bit about the differences of what you found between the wolf, um, you know, the wolf scat diet results there. Yeah. So just to sort of summarize what we found in Katmai first, we found that sea otters were the most common prey mm-hmm. item that these wolves were utilizing. And we also found that they're eating a lot of salmon. About 25%, one-fourth of the scats that we analyzed contained salmon DNA. So that's a really important part of their diet, too. And around 30% of them contained sea otter DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, when we go up to Lake Clark, uh, so the reason that Lake Clark came into the picture as a point of comparison for the Katmai data is that sea otters have not quite reoccupied the Lake Clark coast yet. In fact, they're only just starting to appear there. Um, They have been there historically, but like I mentioned earlier, their recolonization is still progressing across Mm -hmm. the Gulf of Alaska and hasn't quite made it to Lake Clark yet. So uh, we were expecting to not see otter and wolf diet there. And for the most part, we didn't. There Mm -hmm. was one instance actually where a couple of uh, wolf scats contained otter at the same location and they were sampled at the same time. So it was probably one wolf or several wolves that ate an otter together, probably an otter that had died offshore and washed up dead there. Mm. So that was kind of cool to see because it shows you that wolves really are taking advantage of this food source as soon as it becomes available in their system, even if it's not something that's necessarily predictable Mm -hmm. for them. Uh, But beyond that, we found that wolves in Lake Clark are primarily eating moose, which is more of the stereotypical Mm. wolf diet. Uh, And it's cool as a point of comparison because all things considered, Katmai and Lake Clark as ecosystems are very similar to one another. They have very similar circumstances of prey availability. The landscape type is very similar. They're very close to one another and the climate they experience is very similar. So for there to be such a drastic difference in the extent to which wolves are utilizing marine resources between the two parks is really interesting. Yeah. How are they getting the sea otters? We think that, uh, so yeah, I mean, t- in two ways. One is that the otters being at carrying capacity in cat might die, you know, from malnutrition or disease more frequently just because their population is kind of maxed out there and they wash up dead on the beach mm-hmm. and the wolves are able to scavenge them that way. Uh, we did see wolves kill an otter in one instance. We got really lucky. We were watching this location where we had seen otters hauling out and we just got lucky that wolves came that day and decided to kill one. So we do know that they do hunt them and that hunting strategy looks like an ambush, which is how we know wolves hunt a lot of prey, including beavers, um, 
especially prey that, you know, might be able to escape quickly. So Mm -hmm. in this case, we think that they were able to get in between the otter and the water so that the Mm -hmm. otter was not able to escape. And otters are not super graceful on land. So at that point, (laughs) it was was probably pretty easy for the wolves to dispatch the otter at that point. Um, Yeah, I would assume that if the otter gets into water, the wow, otter water, um, (laughs) the wolves have no chance yeah yeah i mean actually you know so there is some speculation and i mean all of it is very speculative at this point but mm-hmm. there's just it's very hard to witness any sort of hunt in the wild um especially a wolf hunt and but there is some speculation that sea otters the moms will leave their pups in shallow water floating while they go off to forage mm-hmm. um and sometimes this is in like sand flats shallow like a couple of feet of water near the shore and it would be possible for a wolf to kill an otter pup that was vulnerable oh. that way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the wolves it have happens. pups too, but everyone oh. has to eat. I know. And it's, it's much harder to be a predator. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, super interested in how um, the wolves might change the community. So we've all heard about how, you know, wolves help shape environments. Um, I imagine you chose them because they're a keystone species how do you predict uh sea otter populations or other prey item populations might change in the future is that something you're looking at or yeah so that's a good question and definitely something that not only us but other research groups kind of working on the coastal wolf diet work uh have also been thinking about so the first thing i'd say is that Sea otters at carrying capacity is a lot of sea otters Mm -hmm. and they are able to reproduce year round. um, So they don't have these sort of pulses of breeding, but rather rather this continual breeding cycle. And because of that, it seems unlikely that wolves would be able to actually, you know, coming into a Mm -hmm. population that's already at carrying capacity, it seems unlikely that wolves would be able to kill enough individual sea otters to actually influence them numerically. Um, But on the flip side, wolves having access to sea otters could have cascading implications for the terrestrial community. Uh, I'll give an anecdote from Southeast Alaska, some research that was recently published in the journal PNAS by one of our uh, collaborators, Gretchen Roffler, with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. She has been studying this pack of wolves on Pleasant Island in the Alexander Archipelago uh, that moved onto the island. And at the time they moved on, there was deer on the island, but there were also sea otters available to the wolves. And this wolf pack started eating a lot of sea otter and uh, did very well as a result of it. And because the wolf pack was bolstered by this additional resource of sea otters, they were able to continue killing more deer Mm. um, on top of the otters. And Mm. eventually uh, the deer population on the island went extinct. It was completely uh, wiped out by ostensibly by these wolves. So that's one thing to think about. We call it in ecology, we call it apparent competition. Um, in this case, it's wolf-mediated apparent competition between sea otters and deer. Mm. And that just means that one prey item increases the population of the predators such that the second prey item is negatively impacted. So oh. that could be you know, one implication of wolves eating a heavily marine diet and being able to get these marine resources regardless of what's available mm. in the terrestrial community because it's not like they stop eating moose when they start eating otter. They're still going to eat whatever they can find. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the population of wolves grows, they're going to need to eat more and more to support that. Uh, so 
yeah, I'm not saying that that will necessarily happen in Katmai. <laughs> it's just theoretically yeah. um, one thing we think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah, the dynamics of all of these different yeah species and the different packs um, in this system. I have a I have sort of an unrelated question that I just thought of. Are you able to set sort of a like general like assign sort of a time period to a scat when you find it based on like I don't know how degraded it looks or or something like that to know like oh this is within the last month say yeah so we try to do that but it is really hard Mm -hmm. just because degradation is so influenced by so many different variables climatically when you're on the coast it's like you know, does the salt from the ocean breeze affect the scat at all? Mm-hmm. We'll see scats that sometimes have moss growing on them. It's like, oh well, how old is oh. this? Yeah. It has moss growing on it, right? And then we still get DNA out of those sometimes, well, which is crazy. More than just moss DNA. I'm right, kidding. more than just moss DNA. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we do try to bracket scats into three categories. We call them either fresh, which is like they could have been pooped that day they're still wet you know it looks like you know if you mm-hmm. were to pick up your dog's poop mm-hmm. um and then medium age which is usually a scat that still like has its color sometimes it's still like softish but it's not mm. um super fresh and then old which is the actually the majority of the scats we find mm-hmm. most places are in the old category and these can be like completely sun bleached white sometimes they're only hair there's no more we call it like the fecal matrix, which is just all of the mushy stuff in between mm-hmm. the animal parts in the scat. Um, sometimes that's completely gone at that point, and it's just hair and bones. Um, and in in those cases, you'd think that you know you wouldn't get any information from them, but miraculously, we are able to recover DNA from these scats as well a lot, a lot of the time, even if it's not quite as high quality as we might like. Wow, mm. yeah, I would have thought the mushy stuff is where 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 it's at. That is I, where it's well, at. <laughs> <laughs> that is where it's at. But it's it's not always necessary. Gotcha. And you're doing all the analysis in the field? Um, so in the field, we will kind of go through the scat and we'll write down what hard parts we're seeing um, just to be able to back reference the genetic information, the you know what we find with the DNA analysis to what we saw with our own eyes. Um, but then we actually only take a small part of the scat and we put it in a tube. And mm-hmm. then back in the laboratory, we're doing a whole process of DNA extraction just with that small subsample so the the magic sort of happens in the laboratory here Mm -hmm. at osu um but we are taking notes in the field as well that we'll refer to later so ellen for someone um sitting at home thinking wow i want to be ellen i want to (laughs) go fly in a tiny plane to a remote place in alaska and track wolves and dig through their poop what was your journey how did you get to to being here at osu doing this graduate program Well, so I have always been super interested in animals. Um, I actually, as an undergrad, I studied um, bees, salamanders, other amphibians, like a lot of smaller critters. And I always used to joke that like, oh, I'm never going to sell out and start studying one of these large charismatic (laughs) animals like a wolf or a bear because these small animals are so underappreciated, which is true. But I did end up selling out and it's because, you know, my heart has always been with these large carnivores ever since I was a little kid. Uh, And so after graduating, I got a Fulbright grant to Norway where I studied Arctic fox conservation. So already kind of getting my foot in the door with the um, large canid work. And then while I was over there, I ended up 
getting the NSF GRFP to come to graduate school, which I brought to OSU here. And I was initially coming to OSU actually to work on a totally different project. I Mm -hmm. was planning on working on a uh, Martin conservation project um, with coastal Martin populations here. And I was really stoked about it. But then I got an email from my advisor, Tall, (laughs) which was, holy cow, something crazy just happened. This money for uh, wolf research in Alaska, coastal wolf research research in Alaska kind of fell into our lap because of some funding shift that happened within the park. I don't really understand the logistics of it, but basically he was like, we need a graduate student on this project. Do you Mm -hmm. want to go to Alaska? And I was like, yes, a million times. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it was serendipitous (laughs) serendipitous and very fortunate and also kind of like, I don't know, faded in a beautiful way because I've always loved wolves. I grew up in Minnesota. I've heard them in the wild. Mm. I hear them sometimes camping when I was younger and now I get to dedicate a lot of my life to them. You've got to travel so many different places um, through your research and obviously work with a ton of different animals. Do you have a favorite location and a favorite animal that you've worked with? Oh, wow. Oh, man. Oh, that's so hard. Salamanders are so cool. I saw a salamander today. Maybe that's why they're on my mind. <laughs> but I think that nothing beats the majesty of coastal Alaska. I mean, the mountains mm-hmm. are just so close to the ocean. You wouldn't believe it. It looks mm-hmm. like something out of a storybook. And mm-hmm. the prominence of them and the, vol- the fact that they're volcanoes. Sometimes you see them smoking, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Uh, the bears. I The most brown bears I've seen at once was 34 brown bears what? at once yeah oh my gosh. all grazing together in a field so like where else do you get to wow. see something like that and actually you know i i might i might say that bears are my favorite animal mm. to see I, their behavior i was talking about this just the other day they they have such clear personalities mm. and it's so obvious like you can remember individual bears that you see multiple times over the course mm. of a week because their personalities are so distinct you know right from the get-go and I think that that's really special. I, I don't really think that I experienced that to the same extent with other animals. Wow. Ellen, I could continue to listen to you talk about your research and your travel adventures for hours, but we are coming um, to the end of our show, sadly. Um, we'll just have to have you back on to talk about Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, we'll do part two. Yes, we will. <laughs> and part three and part four <laughs> and part five. And you're never allowed to graduate. <laughs> Um, but we have three traditions on our show um, before we wrap up. Uh, the first is that, and maybe this is somewhat related to what Matt just asked, but um, what is the favorite thing about your research? So let's not go with an animal or a place. Let's go with a thing. Oh, okay. Well, or go with an uh, animal or a place. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly an animal or a place, but I think it's really cool to get to work in these places that people don't really see so some of our field sites in Alaska are you know bear viewing locations that people take planes to go see bears at and in Guatemala some of the places they work are national parks that people visit like Tikal National Park where the Mayan monuments are people go there all the time but other field sites are you know an eight hour ATV ride away from the nearest road or you know a stretch of coastline that is so uncharted that they can't even tell us where the fresh water is and we have to spend the entire first day there looking for the fresh water and those are the experiences that really stand out to me because I don't know I I just never feel more in touch with nature and the universe and the landscape than when I'm someplace that so few people have walked Mm. before yeah, it's uh, so inspirational. Um, 
what advice, if you could give a piece of advice to any to people listening, what would it be? Mm, I would say... Oh my gosh! I was gonna say, don't give up on your dreams. That's so, <laughs> oh, that's so cliche. I'm We're not gonna, gonna get that, that printed on t-shirts oh, with your face, Lord. Ellen. <laughs> oh lord! Um, what I'd actually say is that having enthusiasm and energy for something can take you a really long way, and that's the type of thing that's gonna stand out to people and make them wanna collaborate with you and give you opportunities. I'm not, you know, I didn't study genetics at all. Like I didn't even take a genetics class as an undergrad and I had so much concern about that coming into graduate school like oh I'm not qualified enough to be doing this work you know the classic imposter syndrome that we all Mm. struggle with but just staying passionate about the work and having the energy to kind of grind and get through the hard days and to always you know be coming up with new ideas and pursuing them that will take you a really long way regardless of what prior knowledge you have or don't have on the topic that you're studying. And finally, uh, our third tradition is that you get to pick your outro song. So tell tell the people what you've picked. And if there's a reason, tell us. And if it's just because I love this song, say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, maybe I should have picked a different one because I, you know, I didn't expect to talk almost entirely about Alaska. But <laughs> I well, chose... this will be a taste of Guatemala. <laughs> yeah, then. This is maybe the teaser for part two. There we go. Is, uh, this is a song called Como te voy a olvidar. It's how am I going to or how how am I going to forget you? Um, hmm. And it is a song that I listen to a lot during my field work in Guatemala. And yeah, I hope you enjoy it. It's in Spanish. So. Yeah. Teaser for part two. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on the show, for being our first of the term. Amazing. Yeah, and we'll, you know, we'll see you back here in a couple months. <laughs> Great. <Yeah>. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you both. All right, everyone, enjoy um, Ellen's, Ellen's song choice. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.